right, welcome everyone back to another episode um, with Setting the Scene. My name is Michael. I'm the host of today's podcast. This is going to be our 36th overall episode. We're nearing number 50. Um, and we're going to be wrapping up our dual degrees in medicine series. This is going to be one of our final episodes. Um, and we're going to be talking about the MD MBA pathway. We've seen this a little more towards our later episodes in this series. And um, we, we thought to have um, another episode about it. We're going to be joined by Dr. Jessica Dong. She is um, just actually right out of residency right now. Um, she is on a vacation in Vietnam. She'll be telling us a little more about that towards the end of today's episode. Um, but we did want to um, just discuss her pathway, hear firsthand from her. Um, I know that some of you out there are interested in the MBA pathway, um, and I'm sure that those who are are very enthusiastic about it. So I hope you enjoy today's episode, um, find it as a great opportunity to learn more about it. Um, and, and we're going to be diving into these these questions here. But I just wanted to, first of all, start it off, Dr. Dong, allowing you to introduce yourself to the audience listening in. Hey, Michael, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I just finished residency a few months ago. I trained in internal medicine, primary care at UCSF and specifically in the program focused on populations based out of um, San Francisco General Hospital. And I am taking a job starting in January, um, working as a physician focused on street medicine for a startup um, that is trying to do um, street medicine in a, in kind of an innovative way. Um, so I, do you want me to go ahead and give the, like the full story on my background or pause there for now? Yeah, absolutely. So if you could just take us back, I mean, just from the very beginning, I mean, it's sometimes, some people say it's as early as high school, some people say it's undergrad, but wherever it was for you that you caught an interest for medicine, just to begin with medicine, um, and then let's say maybe it was before then, if you want to backtrack even uh, before that, that you caught an interest for um, having an MBA, business in general, um, wherever that began, wherever one of those two interests started off first, if you could just start off from there and then continue on to where you are now, that'd be great. Sure. Um, I think that I, you know, starting off in, in high school, I actually like was really against doing something in medicine because that's what my parents wanted me to do. And so like a good teenager, <laughs> I was vehemently opposed to it. Um, but I think throughout high school and college, one thing that I did know was that I did enjoy studying sciences, especially biology, and I really did um, find it rewarding um, whenever I was in a position to help other people. And I think that's a common theme for people who go into medicine is the combination of like enjoying science and enjoying helping people. Um, and so I, I did do some, um, some shadowing in college um, to try and figure out like, is this actually a career that I can see myself in? Um, and it was through shadowing that I, that I realized like, actually, yes, this is something that um, that seems like it would be really rewarding. I got to shadow in the emergency room and saw people kind of like at their most vulnerable at the at crisis points in their life and, um, and got to see a really wonderful physician um, be able to step in and provide a like a trusting um, relationship in that moment and seeing 
how someone could put all of their trust in you at their most vulnerable was something that really resonated with me and was a position that I wanted to be in to help people go forward. Um, so that was kind of the impetus for going into medicine. And then in terms of the non-clinical like uh, motivations for my career, I've always been someone even like, you know, in, in clubs in high school and, and stuff like that, that, um, that likes to think about um, like operations and logistics, how to improve things and um, do things better. Um, and so I think that combined with an, an overarching feeling that I wanted to not only impact patients on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but also be able to have a broader impact on public health, on um, on multiple people at one time, led me to consider dual degree options, um, whether they be in public health or in business, um, to be able to have like a wider scale impact in my long-term career. And I ended up going to medical school at Penn and my path there was um, after undergrad. So in undergrad, I went to Dartmouth and studied biology and minored in environmental science. Um, it took a couple of years off between college and medical school um, because I had heard you know, about people being frustrated with American healthcare and wanting to learn a little bit more about why before diving deep into the, the clinical studies and worked for a couple of years at a company called Close Concerns where I wrote about diabetes and obesity. And I think through that also developed um, a lens through which to see these public health issues um, and realize that, th that it was really, you know, structural, political, social issues um, that led to poor health outcomes in our country, um, more so than uh, lack of medical or scientific knowledge for the vast majority of, of people out there. Um, so went to medical school uh, and then at uh, in med school, Penn had options for both MPH and MBA degrees. And um, I think the, a few things pushed me in the direction of the MBA. One was that at Penn, the MBA program is at Wharton, which has a really well-known and well-respected healthcare management program, whereas the MPH program was kind of just getting on its feet. And so there was like, you know, a lot more of a reputable program when it came to the MBA. And then I got a lot of advice from mentors saying, if you really want to change healthcare, then you have to understand how the resources flow and what the monetary incentives are um, to be able to understand where the levers are for change. Um, and so I, I don't think I appreciated how much that was true until I went through the, the business program. Um, but I think through the advice of people at Penn decided that the MBA route was kind of the more unique route that would be, that would lead to like skills and, um, developing skills and a network that would be much more inaccessible to someone in medicine. Okay. So once I got to medical school, um, I went to Penn where there were, where was an option to do an MPH or an MBA um, to pursue uh, learning about and exploring these broader career interests more. And um, I think even though my ultimate goals were to have an impact on public health, um, the a lot of the advice that I got was that if you actually want to change healthcare, think about doing an MBA, um, because learning about the flow of resources, what the financial incentives are, um, will really reveal where the levers are for change in the healthcare system. Um, and so that was one piece of advice I got. And I also 
was considering the fact that at Penn, Wharton had a, a very reputable healthcare management program through Wharton. Um, and then the, but the MPH school was kind of um, more recently established and, and I think had a, a less rigorous program. And then the other piece of consideration was that, um, you know, as a physician, the skills and the network that are made available to you through an MBE program are just so much less accessible without getting the degree than the skills and network um, that you would gain through an MPH program. And I, one thing that I truly found to be um, like career altering is the fact that like I have now this network of people who are in really influential places in, in healthcare based on people I went to school with in business school. And so if I'm interested in doing something like I through them can usually find someone who either is doing it or knows about someone who's doing it. Um, and can talk to me about it. And that is something like I, that is so powerful and I didn't appreciate until, um, until I went through it. Um, so I, I did the, the MBA program. Um, and like I said, like learned all these things. Um, I did an internship during my MBA summer, uh, and just like the mechanics of how the, the dual degree program worked, um, which is how it works at many places is, uh, at Penn, you do the first, three years of medical school, um, which includes starting your um, clinical rotations as a clerkship student. Um, and then you take a year off um, of medical school to do a dual degree program, whether that be MBA, MPH, or they have a bunch of alternate ones too. Um, so I did a year of business school, uh, did a summer internship, then came back to medical school for one semester and applied to residency. And then my last semester of uh, of graduate school was then spent finishing um, finishing up business school. Um, so in my in my business school summer, um, I did an internship at this really cool organization called City Block. Um, they were a very early stage startup at that time. They had um, they had spun out of um, the same organization that. Um, does like basically like Google Innovative Ventures. Um, and so they were like Google engineers paired with like really um, dedicated community docs who had um, worked previously at a nonprofit health plan um, for specifically on for vulnerable populations in Massachusetts um, had come together to design like from the ground up a care model um, for, for people who were on Medicaid um, and or Medicare and um, had a lot of complex met, uh, social, mental health and medical needs. Um, and this was just like the most energizing thing that I've, that, that I've ever done was to be able to participate in, in thinking about, you know, like how, how would, do we want to provide healthcare and how should we do it as opposed to like, how are we, how do we have to do it? Um, because of the way things are. Um, and as you go through medical training, one thing you'll realize is as a doctor, as an individual, your hands are very tied a lot of times because people's health um, issues and health outcomes are so bound up in what are commonly called social determinants of health. Like do they have housing? Do they have access to healthy food? Um, do they have a place where they can walk without feeling in danger? Um, do they have a social 
like safety net. Um, and all these things are, are almost impossible to impact as like as a physician. Um, but if you have the resources around a medical practice that include social work, behavioral health, linkages to community-based organizations, then that is just such a more powerful way of impacting someone's health than just being, you know, a solo MD. Um, so that's what, you know, that what we worked on um, at City Block Health and now it's, it, you know, five years later and they're still, they're, it seems like they're doing pretty great. They've raised a lot of money to keep doing what they're doing. Um, and I came out of business school and that experience uh, with the understanding that, you know, one of the main, you know, one of the main reasons City Block could do what it does is that it, it uses a different, a non-traditional payment model to, to pay for the services. So in traditional healthcare, you get reimbursed by an insurance company, what's called fee for service. So for every service that you do, you get paid more money. Um, but what these newer primary care organizations are trying to do is to turn that payment model around so that rather than getting paid to do more, you get paid, you get financially rewarded for keeping people well and keeping people out of the emergency room or out of the hospital if they don't need to be there. Um, and so I came out of business school and that experience um, kind of with a um, thesis in my head that that the only way to do healthcare right is first if the payment model underlying the care delivery model um, has its incentives aligned appropriately. Um, and thinking that in the, the future career that I have, that I would be interested in, in being a dual primary care doc um, who also works on a systems level to try and integrate some of those, um, those incentives uh, to inform like care model redesign in a way that, that makes more sense for patients and makes more sense for providers. Um, and so that's kind of the story of the like you know all the decisions and and factors that 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 went into like where I ended up, um, and it's definitely like it's a a career path that um, for relative relatively speaking in clinical medicine like it's a little bit more non traditional which means that you don't necessarily have like the path carved out for you like you do if you want to just be like a clinical person or an academic clinician there's like a very clear path that lasts for decades <laughs> um but for like this kind of path it's it's more of one that you have to kind of carve out for yourself a little bit absolutely i wanted to quickly um branch off of the idea of um fee for service versus a just like a membership based uh, model. So just from past experience, I remember hearing about direct primary care um, mm -hmm. practices, DPCs, I think is what they call them just for short. And to my understanding, I'm not sure if this was an inaccurate um, insight, just having taken in what I did from seeing those and hearing actually from a physician um, about them. I'm not sure if this is correct to say, but I, I believe it's a bit, is it a little bit limited in terms of the services you're able to provide just with the funding they have through these membership um, uh, based models? Yeah, I'd say it's actually quite the opposite that, that um, 
a direct primary care model probably opens you up to provide more services than a traditional healthcare system or practice. Um, I'm curious, who was the the person you talked to about direct primary care before? It's been a while. He was he didn't specifically mention that, but I was just thinking about it. Um, maybe it's I think it came across as maybe an incorrect implication just from hearing that it was something that he only saw in primary care. I was thinking, well, if this was to be done in a specialty based practice something like cardiology or dermatology, it doesn't seem like from what he's saying it would fit in. Um, it's been a while though, I think a year or so since um, um, I, I, I remember um, hearing from him. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to expound on that a little bit more. Um, so just to like, to define direct primary care for your listeners, I, I think that can mean a couple different things. Like um, the overarching uh, thing that it means is that a primary care provider might get paid directly uh, from some entity rather than having to go through an insurance company. Um, that's like the overarching idea, but the way that that can be accomplished, there's many different ways that can be accomplished. So one, like you're saying is subscription or membership based model. Like, and that's what concierge primary care tends to be like your one medicals or forward health. Um, they charge members a, some amount above what the, the member is already paying their insurance company in premiums. Um, the member pays directly to that primary care provider to give them some funds to do extra things that wouldn't normally be reimbursed by insurance. And so for one medical, that includes things like you ha have access to same day appointments, you get virtual visits. Um, and these are all like supposedly paid for by like your membership costs, which at one medical is something like $150 a year. It's not like it's relatively accessible for like a, the working population. Um, on the other hand, there are there is a, um, a, a a CMS initiative, CMS being the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, um, called Direct Primary Care um, that has come under some amount of scrutiny, uh, but the idea is there are some organizations um, like City Block. I don't know if City Block is actually one of the ones participating in direct primary care, but um, there are some organizations, for example, Iora Health, um, which actually just got bought by One Medical, um, and Chen Med, and um, Oak Street Health. Um, these are organizations that historically have. Um, been operating under insurance contracts that have the insurance company pay the provider a set amount per patient per month to take care of that patient with the goal of ultimately doing a better job of coordinating and managing care for that patient than the insurance company would do by themselves and therefore saving, saving money at the end of the day. Um, and what that opens up for a provider is if you get a lump sum payment like let's say a patient would cost on average like $50,000 a year to take care of. Um, and if you get that lump sum payment ahead of time, then you can use some of that money on upstream things like transporting them to clinic for appointments, um, can, like connecting them to, um, uh, to like food resources or a cell phone if they need it and don't have it. Um, and on longer primary care appointments, staffing more primary care physicians and health navigators and 
uh, medical assistance to help follow up with that patient to make sure that they were able to complete their treatment plan. Um, and they in, in use that money to invest it in upstream things like that so that patients don't end up in the emergency room or the hospital, which are extremely expensive um, if they don't need to be. Um, and so the, the whole point of the CMS initiative on direct primary care was to say, hey, you know, if these types of providers are able to, to take on that financial risk, which means that they're the, the ones holding the pot of money rather than the insurance company and deciding how to spend it, um, then we don't necessarily need the insurance company in there to, to be acting as a middleman. And like Medicare can just pay these direct, these primary care practices directly that same lump sum of money. Um, and then we shave off that spending that like that cut that the insurance company is taking. Right. And that overall saves the system money. And so that type of direct primary care was an initiative that was that the government was trying out through um, Medicare specifically Medicare, um, mostly with Medicare Advantage um, patients, which is like a whole um, other concept and set of like things that we can talk about at some point. But um, so that kind of direct primary care is different from like concierge subscription-based primary care in that it's not the, the member or the patient footing the bill, um, but it's the, the Medicare as a government agency. Um, and like I was describing since basically what it, what those types of payment models do is, is open up like all that capital for the organization ahead of time to be able to spend on things, um, that are more upstream and preventive. It usually opens up more services to patients than someone in a regular fee for service model, um, because, in fee-for-service, you only get paid for something once you do it. And it, you don't get paid a lot to do preventive things, especially like spending time counseling someone on something. Um, you get paid a lot to do things like procedures. Um, and so the, per the, the group of people who do stand to lose in a model like this are people like specialists and, um, and hospitals that, that admit patients um, because you're basically charging a primary care provider with trying to reduce utilization of really expensive resources. Um, and so they might, it's true, they might act as a gatekeeper to say, you know what, like I can handle this problem in primary care. You don't need to go to a specialist for this. Um, whereas a patient might be like, well, if I have a heart problem, I want to see a cardiologist. Um, and a lot of times, like there are a ton of cardiology problems that we see all the time in primary care and are perfectly capable of handling, but patients are just more comfortable seeing specialists because that's the way that like American healthcare has trained someone is to say like, if you have a specific problem in a specific organ, like you need to see someone who specializes in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, the, the downside for patients is they do lose some autonomy and choice in, in a setup like that. Um, but by far and away, I think usually like you get, better care in a model like that um, because you have someone who is overseeing like everything on a on a wider scale um, with someone in primary care and, and really like helping to manage what you need and what you don't need and trying to like make sure that that your, your conditions are actually being managed as opposed to just referring you out like nilly nilly willy to specialists who might not actually see the whole picture for you because they only focus on that one thing. So there's, you know, there's a lot of 
pros and cons to to stuff like that. Um, but I think uh, overall, the most people are would agree that like for a, a, a whole patient centered care um, philosophy that paying people more to do primary care and to do more primary care and better primary care uh, is a good thing. And that, that unfortunately probably does come at the expense of specialists. I wouldn't say that like, and sorry, if we need to like move on to other things, we can move on. But <laughs> honestly, the, the one thing that I would say that actually benefits specialists in this situation is that a lot of specialists, they like what I've heard is frustration that like they get sent stupid consults from primary care physicians that like are when they when they receive referrals for things that don't require the level of training and specialization that they've done it's a waste of time for them and then they don't have room or time to see patients that do require the level of training that they have gotten um and so from a specialist point of view like this setup can do a better job of triaging the patients they actually need to see um and so and for a specialist who's super backed up that can be helpful but for a specialist who's like struggling for volume and like needs more people to make ends meet then obviously this is like something that might take away volume from them and might make them feel uncomfortable um so i think what it all comes down to in the end is um like the idea that you that you need to like get to know who the specialists are that you're working with and and partner with them in a way that if they're willing to work with you feels mutually beneficial. Um, and that happens on a very, very local regional level. Um, and so there's not like a universal um, solution or right or wrong or how people feel about it. Absolutely. You mentioned Iora Health and it um, just flicked on um, a light for me, it made me remember one of these um, direct primary care clinics in downtown Las Vegas. I think I, mm -hmm. I remember reading about it um, and it was something that was started in 2012. Turntable Health was the name. Do you remember? Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with Turntable, but Iora did get, it has its early roots in Las Vegas. Um, it was founded in in Massachusetts, but one of their earliest successes was um, working with a, like casino workers in Vegas, I think. Um, and I'm trying to remember the specifics. Um, and I don't want to get this wrong because I did work with people at Iora for a while. <laughs> and it's a little bit um, embarrassing that I don't know Sorry. that I can't pull story out of my head right now but essentially they were able to provide a, a a model such as the one I described where the um where these folks who um were seeing IOR practices um not under a membership-based model but under the the capitated model where their insurance company is paying a, like a per member per month fee to IORA to see them um, and we're getting more beefed up primary care services. We're getting more social services and then had a lot better outcomes on, on their chronic disease. Management. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly actually, um, uh, what I remember they talked about because turntable health, it was, I remember it was in partnership with Iora 
Um, and it started around 2012, 2013, but it had to close down just at the start of 2017. Um, it was a direct primary care clinic. And like I said, it was with Iora. So um, I was just unsure of the discrepancy between uh, why they had to shut down. Because I remember reading through, they were talking about um, a lack of willingness from insurers. But that makes sense when we talk about the capitation model. It does take the the um, help of insurers, the, the, the support of insurers. Um, and I remember hearing that it was very, very successful. I remember hearing that um, they lowered hospitalization rates a bit, quite a bit, um, and they had a lot to it. Turntable Health had um, same-day visits. They had, I think, a personal health coach, too. Um, very, very accessible routes to getting to your um, primary care physician. So, so yeah, I, I mean, it was very, very informative to hear about that. Helps us really understand a lot more as to what you're able to do um, with your MBA, kind of the scope that you're looking at. Um, you mentioned that you did work at Iora. Could you elaborate a little more as to what what you were specifically involved in over there? Sure. So during residency, I set up a away rotation for myself um, when in my third year of residency to try and explore career options as a dual clinician and operator um, for an like um, for an innovative health system. And I um, found an opportunity at Iora to um, to both, you know, work in their clinics in in the Seattle area of Washington, um, and to work with their central um, clinical strategy team on um, on looking at how uh, they're basically helping them to look at what they were spending on um specialty referrals uh in specifically in the musculoskeletal fields um to try and understand um like where the bulk of the money was being spent um and the the reason for that is like as you know as a, one of these direct primary care organizations they are incentivized to track um, how they're spending their money to make sure that it's quote unquote high value. Like there's, if you're spending a lot of money that you, you want to make sure you're getting a lot of value out of that. Um, and so basically they had me take a look at who, um, who was referring to which, you know, spine surgeons or orthopedic surgeons um, for what indications and were, were those like in line with clinical practice guidelines? Were there people at specific health systems that were that seemed to be overcharging for their services? Were there other health systems where they were doing a better job of, of cost management in a high and still providing care in a high quality way? Um, and those were kind of the questions that I was looking at during the time I was there. It was only a, a three or four week rotation. And so, um, it was it was pretty time limited, um, but it was kind of the 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 goal was you know in residency to explore whether that was like a, a feasible career option, and I think that illustrated to me that it was, and um, and helped me like with with understanding or talking about like the kind of 
job opportunities I wanted to look for once I finished. Going back to when you got into the program or when you applied into the program, I should say at Penn, what did you get the sense that they were seeking out for? Was it a clear career that career route that you were looking forward to? Was it clarity and exactly what you're going to do with your MBA? Was it um, drive? What exactly were they seeking out in applicants when you were applying? What did you feel? Um, yeah, I think that um, for the um, for MDs applying into an MBA program, I think the criteria are probably a little bit different than for the general MBA applicant because there's an understanding that you've been in school all this time since you graduated college, whereas most people applying for an MBA um, will have had three to five years of work experience by then. Um, and I, I don't think that at least the program at Wharton had an expectation that you knew exactly what you wanted to do with the MBA. Actually part of business school for most people is trying to figure out what you wanna do with your life. Um, and part of the process is part of like, part of the point of business school is to go through the process of learning and self-examination and, and reflection on like, what do I wanna, like what are my strengths and what do I wanna do? Um, so you, you definitely don't need to know exactly what you want to do with your MBA because part of that will be revealed to you like when you're learning about what the options are out there as uh, like as a student. Um, but I think what in general my program was looking for was people who were like in general like smart and interested in larger health systems issues. Um, and had demonstrated that to some extent via like their extracurriculars or research activities um, while they had been in med school. Or for someone like me who like had had prior work experience in healthcare to be able to like speak to that interest. Um, and so it's just a matter, at the end of the day, I think, you know, when most of the, most of the MD applicants to the Wharton program are like Penn Med students and they at that point were like, you know, they, can surmise that most of the student, the Penn Med students, all the Penn Med students are academically qualified to like go through the Wharton MBA program. Um, so the differentiating factors, I think, were probably like what your your in, like to were demonstrated interest in in pursuing like broader healthcare business activities. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you you say that they were kind of they were not necessarily looking for. Um, a direct path um, in terms of where you'd be afterwards and they were allowing yeah. you to um, kind of make that for your own. So for you personally, do you feel like you, your intentions when you first caught interest with having an MBA have changed um, from then till now? Mm, well, let me back up for a second and say, you don't have to have your direct path figured out by any means, but it does help in, in any application to say like, to to have a sense of, of what your interests are and you might not know how to get there, but there are specific buckets, for example, of people who do MBAs, like people who want to go into like um, biotech or 
um, or pharmaceuticals, like that's one bucket, people who want to go into digital health and like innovation, uh, innovative, like healthcare system stuff, like that's another bucket. There are people who want to go into investing, whether that's venture capital or private equity. Um, and then there are people who want to become like health system administrators. And so those are like some broad general buckets of, of types of careers that you can have in healthcare business. Um, and there's tons more, like you can go, you can also go into nonprofit management. Like there's, there's a lot. Um, but if you, if you have a sense of which bucket you fall into, then it helps make the, make the argument for like, this is, this is the interest I have. This is ultimately like, um, potentially somewhere I might want to end up and you definitely don't have to have the path figured out, but to be able to say like, this is kind of how I envision, um, the type of person that I want to be at the end of it is, is helpful in making the argument that like the MBA will actually help you get there. Um, and then my intentions, I think they, I don't think they've drastically changed. I, I went in, I think I probably wrote my essay on something like, um, on something around like wanting to have broader impact on, um, on like a broader group of patients, on some of the failures of healthcare that I'd witnessed firsthand as a medical provider and wanting to understand like why those failures existed and how to fix them um, and things like that. And I think what I got out of the degree was then realizing, okay, like these are, this is why those failures exist. And then now I can apply myself to working towards fixing them. And now transitioning outside of residency to becoming an attending, do you feel that being an MD, MBA, you're going through um, a different stage or sorry, a different, um, I guess, path of transitioning from residency to being an attending with people who are just yeah. an MD, but are just MDs? Yeah, I, I do think that the, um, the recruiting process is very different for someone with with any sort of non-traditional like career aspirations. Um, so for most people in my residency program, um, so I, I, I went, I did internal medicine, which means that um, if you, if you want to stay general, you can be a primary care doc or you can be a hospitalist, um, which means that you only see patients who are admitted to the hospital. Um, without further specializing. But if you want to further specialize, for example, into cardiology or nephrology, pulmonology, et cetera, then you would have to do um, some additional fellowship training. And most people in my program opted to do additional fellowship training. So after residency, like in your third year of residency, just like you do a match to get into residency, you do a match to get into fellowship. Um, and so then you do a fellowship match. And if you stay in academic medicine, after that, you apply for academic positions, um, like faculty positions at an institution. And that usually occurs also like a year ahead of time. It's like this very pro, like the, the timeline and the structure are like very well-defined. Um, whereas for me and other MD MBAs in my class, uh, none of the MD MBAs in my residency class chose to do a fellowship. I think it's much more common um, for MBAs to stay a little general, because if your goal is to work at a systems level, then it, it is a helpful to know a little bit about everything and B doesn't necessarily make sense to, to get further clinical training. If, if, um, the, like, if your career is kind of on hold during clinical training, um, 
unless that like you, you know, you always wanted to be a cardiologist or something that happens too. Um, and so right out of residency, we, I started looking for a job and to be honest, I felt like I was, I was definitely pigeonholed into, um, like early stage careers for physicians, um, tend to be very, very like hundred percent clinical. A lot of people don't, uh, assume that you don't have the experience or the, um, background and understanding of health systems to like contribute meaningfully at a leadership level. Um, and that's one thing I learned was that people tend to view clinical skills and clinical leadership as going hand in hand when I, in my view, they absolutely don't have to, <laughs> yeah, that's a very good uh, like you can be a really good clinician and a terrible leader, or you can be like a great leader and like an inexperienced clinician. Um, and so there weren't a lot of jobs there were there was exactly zero jobs out there that existed in the form of like a job posting. That was what I was looking for, which was a combination of um, maybe like 50 to 60% clinical and then 40 to 50% um, something at an operational or leadership level. Um, and most of those jobs were, were people didn't even consider me for until I raised the, the, um, my interest in doing something like that. And then people would kind of go, huh? Oh, okay. Like I, I, I understand a little bit more what you're looking for at this point. Um, and I like, in order to find out that those jobs existed, like through even like through recruiters or through like medical director level folks, like most of most people that I would have been talking to as a new graduate, like might not have even had the power to make those jobs exist or know that those jobs existed. I had to talk to people at a much higher leadership level in organizations, usually at the level of chief medical officer or CEO of a company for them to like be able to understand the type of job that I was looking for. Um, because most people in healthcare rise through the healthcare leadership ranks over the years, um, through getting experience firsthand as a clinical provider first and then rising up and up and up. Whereas having learned about, you know, healthcare systems formally for a degree, those are all things that I've had more exposure to, even though I haven't been that provider for, you know, a long time. Um, and so most of the people that you're talking to end up being like very senior, like senior level clinicians um, who some of them, like a, a comment that I got a lot of the time from people who had, who were like chief medical officer level roles were, wow, like all these health systems type ideas that you're talking about took me decades to learn um, just being a provider. And, um, and so like it, yeah. So it was just like, it was eye opening to see that, you know, for a lot, for most people, the clinical leadership and the clinical experience do go hand in hand because of the way that medical training and medical practice works. Um, and so that's why a lot of people think that they should be paired. Um, but there are definitely organizations out there where, where they're like very forward thinking um, leader, people in leadership um, who understand a little bit more like that there is this new generation of people who have been trained on systems stuff um, concurrently with their medical training and so can jump in like at a little bit of a higher level when it comes to their operational leadership role um and being able to find those people um was key in like in finding a job that I actually wanted to do absolutely 
And not to not to go on a tangent too long, but this reminds me a lot of um I was actually just reading an article about this. Mayo Clinic, they have a system where um they partner all physician, they have physician leadership, first of all, but they will partner administrative um staff with each physician um in their leadership so that they can, you know, first of all, see eye to eye and you know, bounce off ideas so that there's not necessarily a lack of understanding. Um, in the eyes of physicians, and at the same time, there's there's experience with specifically admin-related duties, um, uh, which I feel like crosses over a lot with with what you mentioned there. Um, also, I, and I definitely can see how there's a lot of a obstacle really with crafting your own position, just from what you mentioned there, um, having to talk with CMOs, having to talk with CEOs for them to really understand the vision behind what you're trying to get. I also wanted to ask um, quickly, you mentioned that you trained in internal medicine. So do you feel that the choice of your clinical specialty um, limits what you can do with your MBA or does it just reflect what you want to do with your MBA? So I just wanted to wrap up today's podcast with asking, um, you mentioned that you're training in internal medicine or you just completed your residency in internal medicine. Do you feel that the choice of your specialty um, as an MD, MBA now attending limits what you can do with your MBA, or is it just a reflection of what you want to do with your MBA? Um, I, I definitely don't see my choice of specialty as like providing any sorts of limitations on what I can do with my MBA, or I guess. I, I never really thought of it that way. Um, I, I do think it's more of a reflection of what I wanted to do um, in that all of my non-clinical interests center around fixing healthcare systems and who better to sit at the center of healthcare systems than a primary care doctor, which is what I want to do clinically. And so luckily those two things matched up. Um, but I, I don't think that your choice of specialty would truly limit what you want like anything you wanted to do with an MBA um unless you were say like uh for example I think some people who who go into surgical or procedural specialties have a little bit of trouble balancing like a clinical and a non-clinical career because you just you know you need to get volume and numbers to to build your skills in surgery um and that leaves less time to pursue something like um um, like an operational or leadership component to your career. Um, and then for example, if you have specific aims with your business degree, such as like wanting to go into like medical device, like innovation or something, and you specifically want to work on like, um, like a cardiology stent or something, um, then being that specialty obviously gives you a lot more, um, credibility and like insight into what's needed in that field. Um, and so there, there is some complementarity when you choose your specialty, but I think it probably will come naturally because your interests will take you, um, the interests that you, that shaped your, your, um, that shaped why you got the MBA are probably going to be like aligned somehow with a, a clinical interest. Um, and so I, I don't, there's no one that I know that has chosen to go the MBA route that feels like they have like their their MBA ambitions are at odds with their clinical ambitions. Um, and they're like, 
really the one thing that business school taught me is that there are just so many more career choices and paths out there than like than we ever realized. involved um in things that you didn't plan um but i don't at all see like specific specialty choices as as limiting what you do absolutely well i think that's a great place to end off today's episode thank you so much dr dong for joining us um i just want to uh, say to our listeners if you happen to have picked up an interest in md mba um the md mba route or if you already had one um, and you'd like just to explore more, we do have further episodes on this topic and others within the dual degree series. We do have a few other episodes covering the MDA, MD MBA path. Um, we also do have the MD MPH, MD PhD, um, and even MD JD paths covered. Um, and we do have series outside of these. So if you happen to, you know, want to scroll through, feel free. We do publish these episodes around um, every other Friday. So that's uh, a bi-weekly schedule. And um, like I said, feel free to scroll through. We do have more series than just this. But honestly, I found this as such an exciting and engaging episode. I personally learned a lot. I'm sure those listening in can say the very same. Um, so again, thank you so much, Dr. Dong. And to our audience, we really appreciate you for joining us on this episode. We hope to see you for the next.